Hello, and welcome to Under Suspicion, a true crime podcast hosted by Elle Crilly, Lana Imler, and Julia Greco, where we discuss close cases where a death has been ruled as a suicide by law enforcement, but there is evidence suggesting that there was foul play involved in a victim's death. This episode will focus on the case of Annie Boyerson. Just as a warning, this episode contains discussion of suicide that may be distressing to some people. Listener discretion is advised. Annie Christina Boyerson was 30 years old when she made the move from Tebrough in Sweden to Edinburgh in Scotland in the autumn of 2004. As a passionate linguist who could speak six languages, she wanted to improve her English by living in an English-speaking country. To support herself, she managed to win a scholarship with the Scotch Whiskey Heritage Centre in February 2005, thanks to her talent as a singer and a bassist. Annie was thrilled to be living and working in the city she'd fallen in love with. Life was growing great for Annie. That was until the 3rd of December 2005. Annie seemed to be heading back to Sweden, as she made the train journey from Edinburgh to Glasgow, then on to Preswick Airport. But Annie hadn't bought a ticket for the evening flight to Sweden. CCTV footage caught her leaving the airport, going out into the car park, then re-entering the terminal. More CCTV footage captured Annie walking down Station Road, which led on to Preswick Beach. A man and his friend reported seeing a figure on Preswick Beach at 4.30pm, standing right out of the water's edge. The next morning, December 4th, 2005, Annie's body was found on Preswick Beach by a dog walker. Police investigated and ruled her death as a suicide, then closed the case. What if Annie didn't take her own life? So, Lana, why don't you tell us a bit more about the suicide verdict? Were the police right? Or did they miss crucial evidence that pointed to someone else being involved in Annie's death? So, Police Scotland were very quick to determine Annie's death as a suicide, and it's a decision they have firmly and resolutely stuck to in the almost 20 years since it happened. In fact, the police's seemingly point-blank refusal to consider other possibilities or reopen the case, which Annie's family have campaigned for tirelessly, is actually one of the sticking points that make people so suspicious about it. If we follow their logic, we may be able to illuminate their decision and decide for ourselves if the police's judgement of the case is sufficient. Now, when the police arrive at Presswick Beach where Annie's body lies, she's covered in sand and seaweed. She's wearing clothes which match those she was seen wearing by CCTV the day before. Near her body was the bag she'd been seen carrying the previous day as well. She is found by the water and would obviously appear to have been washed up by the sea. The autopsy carried out on her body at Air Hospital, the first of two eventual autopsies and the only one then available to Police Scotland, whose results were published three days later, confirmed serious contamination of her body by sand and seaweed. Congestion of the lungs, a frothy material in her air passages, as well as small areas of bruising and abrasion, two patterned roughly square contused areas, and a small depression in her skin. The verdict given was death by drowning with the several small wounds noted being explained as having been due to contact with the rough objects in the water, as published for public interest by Kenneth Roy, the Scottish reporter. The post-mortem contained no suspicion of foul play. Whilst police were at the scene, a man came forward with an eyewitness account. He claimed to have seen someone of medium height standing out at the edge of the water at 4.30 the day before. The figure remained fixed on the shore for at least 20 minutes. He had seen this figure whilst walking out with a friend, and he remembered commenting to them that this person might be suicidal. 
The sighting took place an hour and a quarter from the time CCTV recorded Annie leaving Prestwick Airport in the direction of the town. There was also CCTV footage of a figure the police identified as Annie, walking along Station Road in Presswick at 4.05pm. The person captured by the camera also carried a bag, and the road is only a short distance from the beach. This evidence was enough for the police to close the case as a suicide, as to them there was clear enough evidence of Annie being seen headed down to the beachfront alone, before being found there dead from drowning the next day. Annie was also known to be suffering mentally before her death. A staff member working in Annie's accommodation who frequently saw her commented that she'd seemed depressed, and another person in her building remembered Annie saying, quote, She had something to take care of, and had a decision that might change her life. Her last phone call with her mother, overheard by a friend she was with at the time, was strange. She warned her mother not to call her apartment's home phone because they would be listening, and bluntly told her, you have to respect this, but I must take care of myself. This phone call was only 36 hours before her death. Now, at a glance, this picture would seem to conclusively paint Annie as being suicidal. If she was troubled, then she would have motive, and being placed in town the afternoon before her body was found suggests she had the opportunity. Except that the evidence the police decision was based off is actually quite flawed, which complicates their so-called simple conclusion. Starting with the sightings of her that day. Despite the assumption that the person seen on the shore was Annie, the police in fact never asked if the figure seen actually resembled her. Furthermore, a journalist reenacted the witness statement by placing a similar looking woman at the same time of day in the same weather conditions, as far away as the witness had been from the figure he saw, and they couldn't make out anything but a dark, nondescript shape. In his opinion, identification of Annie from that distance would have been impossible. As to the CCTV evidence, the footage was incredibly blurry, which poses similar problems of identification. A retired detective from Lothian was asked to study the CCTV images, and said this, I have extensive experience of examining CCTV footage, and I must honestly say the images from Station Road are rubbish. I may assume that it's Annie, with what time and travel direction, the detectives should never assume. They work with facts, not assumptions. Furthermore, even if this did conclusively show Annie walking alone to where her body would be found, even if she had motive and opportunity, which we don't have enough evidence to conclude, can we, in good faith, say she had the means to drown herself? She was found with nothing to weigh her down to assist her sinking. Annie was known to be a strong swimmer and had just before her death purchased an annual membership to the leisure centre she frequented. It is nigh on impossible for someone to drown themselves unaided, as it goes against every survival instinct the body has, let alone someone as physically capable as Annie. So with such flimsy evidence and holes in their theory, why were police so convinced it was her seen walking to the beach that day, and ultimately that she took her own life? I'll tell you why. Because their opinion did not come from evidence. Police spoke to a local journalist at the Ayrshire Post on the day Annie was found, far before the autopsy results would be made available to them. Officers told the reporter straight away that there were no suspicious circumstances surrounding her death, a fact they had decided and would stick to, yet that they could not conclusively know. And you, Julia, why don't you try and explain to us that if it wasn't a suicide, what could it be? A murder? Or maybe even a carefully planned assassination? 
Now that we've seen the issues with the police investigation, we are then left with one question. If Annie didn't take her own life, how did she die? Bruising on Annie's face and neck, documented by the pictures Annie's family took, is one of the main points suggesting that the Swedish national could have been murdered. Such bruising, though, was only noticed by the Swedish undertaker and Annie's family. There's no mentioning of back bruises in the Scottish autopsy. Scottish authorities explained that these marks could have been faint but became darker, bruise-like marks, with time. In the BBC documentary Body on the Beach, What Happened to Honey, the Home Office Registered Forensic Pathologist Dr Stuart Hamilton confirms that the marks were indeed bruises. The pathologist explains that a bruise is caused by damage to a blood vessel under the skin and their consequent leak. The pressure from the individual's blood from their heart beating pushes the blood into the tissue around the damaged vessel and that produces a bruise. In short, dead people don't bruise. Another aspect that emerges from the BBC documentary has to do with Annie's bone marrow. From testing, freshwater microalgae, the correct term here is diatoms, were found in Annie's bone marrow. But if the woman had drowned in the sea, shouldn't marine diatoms have been found instead of freshwater ones? This could be explained through contamination. Or was she killed in fresh waters and then placed on the beach? One way to put this to rest would be to perform a second test on Annie's body tissues and other fluids, which are in possession of the University of Glasgow, but they won't be released for a second analysis. Then the question, why not release the samples to be tested if the results will align with the police's verdict of suicide by drowning in the sea? As for the CCTV footage police are so convinced it shows Annie, civil rights lawyer Amir Anwar might not agree with the police, as he explained in the BBC documentary. Anwar, who is also an expert at analysing evidence in court, says that as the footage from the CCTV is extremely blurry, it's nigh or impossible to identify the figure as being a male or a female. If someone tried to present that CCTV footage in court as evidence, the defence would argue that not to be an acceptable or credible evidence. It is fair to assume that a figure is walking along the street but it's hard to tell whether that's even a male or a female. And then there's the mysterious rugby player. Annie was telling her family and friends over in Sweden that she had met a famous rugby player at a pub. His name was Martin Leslie. There's even a mystery on the way his last name is spelt as well. Some spell it L-E-S-L-I-E, whereas others spell it L-E-S-L-E-Y. When the police looked into him, they found out that Leslie was originally from New Zealand, but played 37 times for Scotland. However, he had gone back to New Zealand in 2003, so he didn't even meet Annie. Who was Annie talking to then? Even the manager of a Murrayfield pub said he never saw the actual Martin Leslie in his pub. After all, if Leslie was a famous rugby player, surely if he'd gone there, people would have seen him or known he was around. Was Annie then talking to someone who was pretending to be his famous rugby player? Some people even argue Annie's mental state was so bad she was imagining things. But was she? In the mysterious life and death of Annie Boyerson, a Scottish Review special investigation, it's said that a couple of days before Annie's death, the man went to the swimming pool Annie frequented with no explanation. Was he following her then? However, the Scottish Review says there was no evidence to link this man to Annie's murder. Finally, there is an interesting theory that some people believe. It sees Annie being assassinated in a case of mistaken identity. It's important to mention at this point 
In 2005, the CIA was using Presswick Airport to relocate prisoners from the Middle East to Guantanamo Bay. Why is this relevant to the case, you may ask? As we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, Annie's full name was Annie Christina Boyerson. Christina Boyerson was also the name of a US journalist who some people believed to even look like Annie, who was known for investigating secret services in America. This theory could then explain why Annie was also so fearful that someone was listening into her phone calls and following her. What is very suspicious is the fact that Annie's phone records and emails were completely wiped. Even the phone company had no record of any calls or texts Annie sent or received in the three days before her death. Annie's family and friends did call her during this time frame, but any trace of these calls occurring had been erased from their phone records too. Only someone with a lot of authority can authorise this sort of action. So was Annie then killed because she was thought to be the US journalist who might have been stationed at Presswick Airport to report on the CIA? Is this why her phone record and emails were wiped clean? And perhaps most importantly, is this why the police are so reluctant to discuss Annie's case and insist it's closed? In the BBC documentary, we see the Sky News journalist Rob Muller ask for the records at the highest level in private communication between Scottish and Swedish governments regarding Annie's death, and the answer to Muller's request was no, saying that releasing any material relating to Annie's death could harm Sweden's relations with another country. It's hard to decide how to make sense of Annie's case which is why there are countless reports, documentaries, and video essays trying to make sense of her case, and questioning the suicide verdict. Although there is sense to the police's ruling of suicide, many aspects of the case are very odd and don't have an easy explanation. It's widely agreed that the police investigation could have been a lot better, as it was impeded by the poor quality of the forensics work and the over-reliance on poor quality CCTV footage as evidence for the verdict of suicide. Ultimately, whether this was a murder or a suicide, what truly matters is that an innocent life came to an end far too soon. Annie's dreams of travelling, learning more languages, and making music were abruptly extinguished. Her family is left to grapple with the irreplaceable loss of their beloved daughter, something that no family should be put through. Instead of dwelling on theories about her death, we will conclude by remembering Annie in our thoughts. Thanks for joining us this episode. Make sure to tune in for our next episode, where we will be discussing the case of Ellen Greenberg. Thanks for listening. See you next episode. Bye, everyone.